Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Chantelle. Tisa. And today we are really excited to be joined by Dr. Jason Arday from University of Warwick. Hello, hey. Jason. Hey, Chantelle. Hi, Tisa. You well? I'm good. We're good. good. We're going to talk about a book that Jason's written that's been like 10 years in the making it was my dream book it's like your dream book but <laughs> it's not yet out but we're going to talk about it like a sort of cultural analysis i guess and it's called whore britannia uncorking the champagne supernova and we've just been discussing like how we're gonna formulate this podcast i was born in 1992 tisa's born in 1978 and jason's wow. born in 1985 so we've all got and we're all black oh, and yeah. we've all got a sort of perspective and an experience of this sort of the 90s basically and what that meant for us in terms of where we lived who our family were and most importantly what popular culture meant to us or didn't mean to us at that time so yeah Jason can you tell us a bit about sort of how the book is going to be or is structured yeah first and foremost thank you both so much for having me on it I really really appreciate it the title's that long I've even forgotten it so it's called Call Britannia Multi-Ethnic Britain Oh, I'm yeah, like, sorry. Like, I was thinking, people probably listened thinking, yeah, the most important part, Jay, you forgot, it's a multi-ethnic Britain. Multi-ethnic um, And the book kind of came about just kind of thinking about my childhood as a black male growing up in South London, um, Clapham, and also just kind of observing what went, went on around me. Um, so, you know, the cancer state I grew up on, you see a lot of things as, as a young child and you kind of, it, you know, you question certain things. So one of the more surreal things that kind of happened as a kid was um, I remember the local kind of drug dealer who was like, at the time, had a lot of material wealth. Houses, had a car, had all these things. And I remember him stopping me like on the street on the way to the shop and he turns around to me and I'm like thinking in my head like, if anyone sees me, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble because they will, they will tell my mum and dad before I get home and I'm going to get licked <laughs> if I get this. So I'm thinking in my head, why has he stopped me? And he said, he turns around to me and says, you see my fancy car? You see my fancy wallet? You see my... He listed about 10 things. I was kind of like, where are you going with this? Because if I get seen, I'm going to get in trouble here. And he said, whatever you do, keep your head in your books. Make something of your life and don't do what I'm doing. It was like the most paradoxical thing, like at 14, I could ever kind of... I was yeah. like, what? Like, this guy has got like literally hundreds of thousands of pounds and he did like you know there's no exaggeration about that or tens of thousands of pounds and he's sitting there telling me or he's in his flash convertible jay keep your head in books books. so like um so kind of thinking about that and recollecting that you kind of think about this story and you think about things that kind of it's little things like tv yeah tv being an example you know um it's changing more now but the idea that if you wanted to see black people on tv you had to wait till after 12, yeah. you know, 12 a.m. to and, and Channel 4. And I remember my mum keeping me and my brothers up to watch this thing on BBC called Blouse and Skirt. And it was just basically so we could get some semblance of, like, yeah. black heritage and black culture. Because, you know, if you went to bed at, like, 10 or 11, you genuinely would not see any people of colour on TV unless you watched sport. Mm. Um, and then even when you're watching sport... You're kind of looking at someone like, let's say, Linford Christie, mm. and you're thinking, you recognise him as a really good sprinter, but, like, the commentators amongst themselves are talking about anything but his sprinting capability. Yeah. And you're picking that up as, like, a 14-year-old, 15 you're thinking, why are, they, why are they talking about what he looks like mm. in his, like, running mm. attire as opposed to what he can do? You kind of think of things, and things like Desmond's, how, you know, you have this kind of West Indian family, Guyanese, Western, that, that come over and on Windrush and... 
telling this narrative and this story and just kind of things that punctuated the, the kind of time, you know, at a time where someone like Chris Eubank, as eccentric as he is, and people mm. like Nigel Benn, they were like at the forefront of something really special. And then you have like Skin from Skunk and Nancy, who's this kind of beautiful, androgynous, queer black woman. Mm. And she's leading like a rock, a punk rock movement. And she's from like your neck of the woods. She's from Brixton, South London. And you're thinking, this is challenging all the things that like you perceive to be normal. And what people yeah. tell you about the blacks, mm. these people are challenging all of these things. So it's a kind of rewiring almost of what's kind of going on around you. That's so interesting. You describe, or in the book, you say you sort of split the era in which you're covering into three sort of significant moments. Can you tell us about those moments? Yeah, so for me, like, the era, that particular point in time was punctuated by three particular incidents or episodes or occurrences. So there was the murder of Stephen Lawrence in 1992. Uh, There was the induction of New Labour after kind of nearly 20 years of Conservative rule. And then there was the release of the McPherson Report, which kind of declared British society as institutionally racist. And it was Mm. something that, you know, if we look at, the works of um, Sindhavan had had said, you know, Mm. 25, 30 years prior to that. But it almost became immortalised in that report. Mm. And from that, there was the intention to have interventions put Mm. into place. Um, I suppose you kind of think nearly 20 years later, what was the impact of that? And I suppose we can kind of unpack that uh, between the the three of us. But, yeah, those those kind of key events were really important. I also recognise that for other people... That particular point in time may have been punctuated by other pertinent events, you know, the death of Princess Diana, you know, football coming home in terms of Euro 96, or, you know, mm. England getting to the semi final World Cup in um, Italian 1990. Um, you know, Berlin Wall. Berlin, Berlin Wall. Yeah. Um, you know, all of those things. So yeah. there's all of those kind of things that kind of happened during that time, um, which will resonate with different people, you know, but essentially, I think the collective consensus is that um, it was a point in time you know, somewhere between 1993 to 1997, Mm. uh, where Britannia, called Britannia, Mm. ruled the world again. You Mm. know, similar to, you know, the mid-60s when, you know, Britain um, was the epicentre of everything that was cool. That's kind of what it talks, kind of growing up through that period, but obviously kind of thinking about the fact that there are people that will identify with that period completely differently Mm. through a discriminated and racialized lens because at that time there was a high high sense of populism there was a high sense of racism and actually there was a large proportion of british society that couldn't didn't acknowledge racism and wouldn't even qualify it as some as a discriminatory um, vehicle and what's really interesting like listening to you talk jason and the sort of premise of the book is how that relates to the moment we're in now. Um, So it was quite, there's there's a lot of similarities and it's just really interesting seeing how sort of history repeats itself and things don't change as much. The madness is right. Like, so, like, I had done my undergrad dissertation on the 1993 Millwall by-election, the BNP. I grew up with the BNP. Mm. They never left. Yeah. They never went anywhere. Mm. So... In this current moment now, I always speak to people, people hadn't changed. Mm. No one had changed. We've had the Scarman report, we've had the McPherson report, all singing the same tunes. So it's not that things had never changed, it's just that people were quieter. Yeah. And and this is the scary thing. It's more intelligent now, isn't it? Yes, 40 years now we're talking. And I'm seeing the same stuff that I saw when I was eight. Mm. And I asked my mum this question, I said, how do you feel at your age now, at 61, Mm. 
She came over when did you... So she came over when she was about seven. So she's in the 60s now. So she's thinking, she said, she feels disappointed. Mm. She said a lot of people of her generation thought we've made progress. Mm. But she knew, my nan knew, we all know. Mm. But are we deluding ourselves? Mm. Were we deluding ourselves? Because this is an issue, like I said, I wrote about this in 1993. I grew up in the 80s. Mm. So when I see this moment they're in now, and I look back over the years, like in the 90s, in that part, in the 90s, I was immersed myself in subcultures. So mm. I can remember those things. Like when Princess Di died, I can remember where I was. I was in a club <laughs> dancing and they stopped the mm. music. But these things were still going on. Mm. And it worries me now that if this has always been the case, how do we move forward? I think what's really interesting about sort of both of your perspectives on this period is that because you're a little bit older than me, Things weren't necessarily changing, but it's Chantel, almost Chantel, you like... say that one more time. Sorry! <laughs> <laughs> I've got... Uh, yeah, anyway, so... Um, look at thinking about, for me, so my... So my, yeah, my dad's black and my mum's white. In the ni- the early 90s when they had me, um, sort of pushing me through Dol- Dolston Market in a pram was a bit, was a bit of a problem. Yeah. Like, my... Mum and dad used to get harassed, like people used to spit in my pram and whatever. But then, so there's those sort of overt things of, overt instances of racism. My dad was also stabbed on a bus. But on the flip side of it, it was almost like there was these sort of plasters going on, all like, all of these things on a sort of uh, institutional level. So uh, how I qualify that is thinking about how I was positioned in schools. So I grew up mainly in predominantly white towns, first of all in Medway Town in Kent and then second of all in Worcestershire in the West Midlands. And I was always positioned as sort of like the poster girl for the school. So like if ever like, the school was coming in for like, if ever there was like a newspaper coming in or like they needed someone, to, a kid to be on the front of the brochure, boxes, like yeah. ticking all the boxes, like I was always there. So it's really interesting thinking about that period in the 90s because my mum would so regularly get called into schools to be like, can we use Chantel to do this? Can Chantel do that? Can Chantel speak? at this mm. I remember um, me and I were talking about this recently there was a woman that was coming in for Diwali and they the school asked me to dress up in like a sari and like so give what, out sweets so you was Asian for the, the day oh yeah. my god do you know what I'm literally like me and one were talking about this but the, describing it now it's so problematic yeah. like so the school dressed me up in a sari yeah. and I was in the assembly and I was giving out sweets to all the white kids Jesus, oh my you, god! <laughs> the closest thing you get to something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, and obviously, I'm my dad's Nigerian and Ghanaian. Like, yeah. my mum's what I've no, no, I've got no relation to that part of the world at all. Um, but yeah, so it's really interesting. Like thinking about these overt sort of instances of racialization and racism that define this period that Jason's sort of recollected, and also thinking about how people were trying to mask racism mask all these things through institutional tick boxing all that so I feel like for my in my era which is not that far from you guys but this was a, something that was really yeah. prominent in growing up for me yeah see when I think of the 90s and I think of that kind of that label called Britannia yeah to me I always saw it as being very white oasis yeah blur pulp just to me yeah I guess I guess mm. I, I'm trying to not use hindsight 
but I find it difficult. Looking back now, mm. it's very white and middle class. It's so interesting. So when my my <laughs> mum was really into like that music, like I grew up listening to like Blur, Radiohead, Oasis, yeah. and like I would sing the songs at school, and the white kids would say to me, "That's not your music. Yeah, Stop singing. Yeah. <laughs> Stop singing." Yeah. Okay, so, so Jason, like this uh, yeah, is your music. I, like, 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 yeah, I, I got told that from white kids and from black kids. So I mean, I, I agree with you, Tito. You know, you see it as that. You know, even even then, you know, term Britannia, like is is a troubled term anyway. I mean, I think there are other things that kind of punctuated that as well. So I only it's because I remember this song being played over and over again in my house. But it's a song by Inner City called um, Good Life. Uh, that's it. Let me take you to big yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, right, so, yeah. And I just remember that big song. Big fun. Big fun. Yeah, yeah. Big fire. We're fire. having big fun. Hey guys, I don't know what okay. you're talking about. <laughs> if you were seven years older, like, uh, but, but like, and I just and and there was the kind of things, and then you had like, because there was other movements that punctuated it. So like towards the end of the eighties, and you had the bass movement and like soul to soul, mm-hmm. like kind of massively, like um, kind of what. Well, pushed that on and it's funny because like they became global superstars mm. yeah and interestingly that music wasn't necessarily categorised as music for just black people no it's everyone and, so and, why and, did that happen why does that happen did we did, was there like an imagined no. social contract that black no, people you, were you see the thing right and I for me what made what changed it for me was rave and drug culture mm. so when I started going out I went out I went to my first rave in 1993 mm. right so when I first went and I I saw people that I would never speak to. So there's white guys in there you would yeah. never speak to. But all of a sudden, we're, we're friends. Right. We're all friends. And, and the this, denominator is, is the, is the, the music. To all extent and purpose, it's music. the music, yeah. Listen, I'm listening. And when I say to my mates, my white, my black mates, they, and they be like, I said, come to this thing, and they're like, into a rag. I'm like, no, that's dead, man. Mm. Like, you want to come to a house rave? House rave is different, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. But these people, they didn't understand it at the times. But if, as things go on and it becomes mainstream... Now house is the thing. Now house is the thing. Yeah. But I said, I, used to, I, used to, I went to this place called Strawberry Sunday. It was, um, it was down in Vauxhall. So this be, used to be a club called Coliseum Club. But before, prior, to, prior to Coliseum Club, it's called a Satellite Club, right? So by the Satellite Club, was Strawberry Sunday. Strawberry Sunday was a house club. But house at that time was for white people, in the yeah. great commas, and garage is for black people. So... You'd find was there an acid movement alongside? Yeah, that? and there's an acid house. There. Right, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's mad, but you you'd see these things and you'd know, and because most of my mates from East London and mostly white guys, I ended up in the house thing, mm. and because if you if you're with them, you'd be like the token black. There'd be like three or four black guys in there, mm. but it's a, it was a different thing. But over time, that music and the drug scene, which kind of like the criminal justice bill, kind of killed, but that scene that made everyone together. Even if it was, I don't know, imaginary, mm. because it was all, all everyone was intoxicated, but mm. it seemed like all the stuff I felt when I was in school or at home didn't matter. Mm. Like, you'd speak to, I'd speak to football hooligans. I met people who I know were in the Tottenham firm. It was a good time, man. Yeah. Like, I look back and I think to myself, if I could do it over again, you do it, yeah. I'd do it. And I think most people my age are still trying to recreate that. They yeah. go out and they, they're trying yeah. to get wasted, but it's not the same now, man, that, you know? No, apart from anything else, it's sorry. Apart from anything else, it's it's police within an inch mm. of its life. There was a freedom, then, from what I know of, from what I've been told. Like, I mean, I mean, it's funny because like you kind of think to yourself, and you do kind of think, what does a black boy from South London? What business does he have 
like being interested in four working class boys from Burnage in Manchester. Yeah. And I don't I don't I don't know, you know, you, uh, the first album I bought was definitely maybe. That was the first album I bought when I was like 13 and I don't know what it was about it, but it completely I was sold. Like, Did you watch the documentary? The Ice Supersonic. Yeah. Yeah. It's and I saw it in the cinema like, four oh, times. Yeah, yeah. So, like, oh. um, the really interesting thing with that is for me, it was an awakening. So, it was this whole thing, like, of complimenting the idea of being yourself. It wasn't so much the mad for it, like, mad for it culture. It wasn't that. But it was more to do with it was this idea of, like, it was little things. And, like, the way I kind of learn, you, you, you take bits and bobs from music. So, it was like this whole idea of, like, in cigarettes and alcohol, like, is it worth the aggravation to find yourself a job when there's nothing worth working for? Like, great song lyric, and it, and it makes you think, actually, what would I, what, if, if, if money wasn't an issue, what would I love to do? You know, and little things like, um, you know, live forever. Like, you know, there's just, there's just things in that that kind of massively speak to you. And regardless of race aside, there's always that narrative of the underdog story. You, you, you kind of, you engage with that. You engage with this idea of like, you know, for working class boys, let's take the race away, four working class boys who just want to be the best band in their street. Because in Manchester at that time, highly populated with some of the most influential bands in British like subculture. Just want to be the best band in their street, let alone them become the best band in the world. And I suppose the paradox comes because you have Blur, who are Goldsmiths alumni, who studied mm. art Yeah, yeah, here. yeah, like the middle class. Yeah, middle yeah, class, yeah, yeah. right, middle class. And, and at that time, you know, there's really, this really funny line that Noel Gallagher says where he says, you know, Look, I worked on a building site, and I didn't, and I and I never had money. Um, they didn't. They're middle class guys. Does that make my soul purer than theirs? And it's not that I identify with that, but it's, it is the kind of idea that actually there is something more organic about someone that has had to really strive for something over someone who has just had privilege and it be given them. Well, you see, that's, this is what I'm saying. Like this. When I look back in the nineties, this is a consistent thing. Yeah. So you see, like things like Guy Ritchie and his movies, yeah. aping working class culture. Yeah. He's a middle class guy. He doesn't know anything, but no, no. And he made it cool to be from the East End. Yeah. But this is a consistent. If you go back to the nineteenth century, middle class people just come to tours to look at yeah, the yeah. working class people yeah. and ape yeah. their style. And this is a consistent theme with companies that might send people into the like the into like the working class areas to see what they're wearing yeah. to report back it's, I think it's called broing or something like that mm. but like I said that these things are patterns that, that happen mm. and still go on so I don't know I think it's really good to bring in here like like Stuart Hall's cultural analysis like yeah. it's so integral to like we're just talking about music and popular culture but Stuart Hall said this stuff is so important like culture matters it matters to mm. our politics it matters to our interpersonal like it shows us about how society is working or not working but, but this is it so if this is the case at this moment at this precise moment culture is everything mm. and this is the debate that politics is taking place on culture is everything but what that what the, by elevating culture so high it's neglecting things like class mm. community because culture emphasizes the differences between people, mm. and and this and this is this is the problem now. Because yeah. how do we find solidarity? Mm. And this is what we're having problem finding. And the populist answer in the country around the, around Europe, anyway, is to expel people to find solidarity. And it, it hasn't worked in the past. <laughs> it won't work in the future. Mm. Yeah. And this is my concern. We know how the story ends. Yeah. We've done it so many times. Yeah. So how do we change the, how, how do we change that narrative? given that we know better now. 
Well, do we know better? That's the point, well, I guess. The thing, that, the thing that I think that drives things for me is, if you look at current geopolitics, China is an ascendancy. Mm. So that will change things. Climate change will change things. Mm. So we have to make smarter choices, given that regardless of what you do, it doesn't matter how many barriers you erect, people are going to come, because climate change will push people forward. So what are you going to do? Be racist to everyone. Build higher walls. It's not going to work. It's, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a sad yeah. reality. And I think one of the things that you spoke about, Jason, in, when you were telling me about this book, is that you also position... Just bringing it back. I think the geo stuff is really mm. important to you, but just bringing it back to the personal within these political contexts. But in the book, you talk about being stopped and searched for the first time. Yeah. So at the time, I was on my way to a gig, and um, who were you with? And yeah. Yeah. So I was with uh, three uh, young white males who were at the time fourteen. We were all fourteen, and um, obviously going to a gig that you know probably shouldn't have been allowed to get into, but we we've been there before. And yeah, and the police stopped the four of us and said, "Can and pulled me aside and said, can I speak to you for a minute?'" Um, we're just doing, you know, stop and search. There's, there's been a, a spate of thefts in the area. <laughs> and again, the first thing that goes through my mind isn't actually being stopped, is the idea of being, st- is the idea of someone seeing me that knows my parents yeah. and telling them that I'd been stopped. And then you, you, you're there and you're being kind of patted down and people are watching you and, you know, tutting and kind of bowing their head and kind of nodding their head in disapproval. And then the police, you know, after 15 minutes, they're like, you know, yeah, the policeman turns around and says, okay, we're done with you. Make sure you stay on the right side of the law. And the three white guys and we've asked me, um, what did you do? I said, what did I do? I've been with you for the last three hours. Mm. And then one of them kind of retorts and says, well, you must have done something because the police just don't stop people for no reason. And at that stage, it'd been this thing that my dad had been telling me my whole life that had just come like, no matter, no matter how you see the world, Jason, through these kind of really optimistic, you know, hippie, tinted glasses which I am an optimist and I'm a bit of a hippie well I'm not a bit I'm a lot of a hippie but like but the, the world isn't like that and it was and it was almost like at that moment you have your innocence stripped from you mm-hmm. you're not you're not a boy anymore you're not a boy mm-hmm. anymore you become a man overnight in that sense not in a masculine sense and you just and you become like hyper vigilant hyper paranoid hyper you know have I dressed in a way that's attracted attention is all I wouldn't compare it to um how women have to think about a million and one things. But you do think like, okay, well, I'm wearing a hood and it's like two degrees outside. Mm. Uh, should I take this down? Like, you know, if I've just walked into a shopping centre and my hood's still up, do I, should I, you, know, you start overthinking absolutely everything because you're thinking, am I doing anything to attract mm-hmm. um, the wrong type of attention? And that's saying something because I, I remember what I was wearing. I was wearing like two-tone shoes. I was wearing some paisley yellow socks. I was wearing some turn-ups. And I think I had, a, I had a roll neck on. I looked, I looked the bollocks on that day. <laughs> um, so even if there was, even if there was like a stereotype of what you know a, a thief or a criminal or a black criminal mm-hmm. should look like, which is in itself is absolutely stupid to think that you can kind of ascribe yeah. racially ascribe someone in terms of what they would look like in terms of that kind of thing. You don't bring those kind of things on, and it just it completely changed. It changed me a lot because then you realise you're not actually part of this. Yeah. And, and that was sad. And in relation to what Tiso was just saying then about we have to we have to learn the lessons, we have to do do something different, we have to not do what we did before. And like seeing about seeing what's happening at the moment, um, 
with stop and search powers in relation to yeah serious youth violence and all this sort of thing it does feel like history's repeating itself again and that yeah your experience is something which is commonplace for young black boys in in cities and it's you see i don't think i don't think the the British public and the British police have been honest about this. They need to understand that from the very, from the very inception, mm. our relationship with the police was always troubled. It was f- yeah, afraid. Like, 1981 so, riots. If you go back to the Notting Hill riots, yeah, where, they, Hill where, riots they, yeah. where they denied stuff, the police, they knowingly denied that there were mm. white racists taking that people. This has always been kind of the undertone mm. that runs between the black community and the, and, and the police. But no one actually admits that. No one actually said no. to them, like, like, listen, there's a scar on mm. our relationship. So we find it hard to trust you, mm. but you, we have to because you represent law. Yeah. So w- we find ourselves in a kind of difficult position. I meant to trust you and respect you, but I know in the past and from my own experience, you're not trustworthy yeah. at times. So it, you end up in a funny position. Right. So what do you do as as a young black person? As a young black boy, it's a kind of kind of schizophrenia. You're in yeah. two separate minds. Yeah. You're brought up to respect the law, and do what you're told. But then you see from your experience, people just being rude, mm. unnecessary, and basically exploiting their power. So what do you do? Most of the time, my friends, you play up to the stereotype. So I ended up being you. End up being that type of person because mm. you think well, you think I'm that anyway. So what are you going to do? It's interesting you say that. I mean. The paradox I took to it, like, I've always been obsessed with, like, temperament. I remember being a kid and my dad, like, always um, just had loads of cassettes. And ironically, my dad doesn't have a great temper, but, like, um, or great temperament in terms of being collected and calm. You won't forgive me saying that. But, like, he used to show loads of, he used to just have loads of videos of Bjorn Borg. And Bjorn Borg was obviously, like, five-time winner of Wimbledon, you know, uh, retired in 1980, Swedish um, tennis player. But on the court... This guy's temperament, like his nickname was the Iceman, and he just never lost his temper. In pressurized situations, he was cool, calm, and collected. And obviously, seeing that as a as an autistic kid, you fixate on certain things, and I became really obsessed with with that. And I remember thinking, like the first time I got stopped by the police, the next time I get stopped, which is really weird. You shouldn't be thinking as a fourteen year old. The next time I get stopped, but I remember thinking I won't be fretful. I'll be really collected and calm because I had observed, as you said, like, you know, they think you're something. And so in the end, you, you know, they, they force you to play up to it. Mm-hmm. And so and then you know, it all leads to the classic kind of thing, which is what they want, which is to put their hand. You know, and there's quite something quite symbolic about placing your hand yeah, as control. a white male on someone else's head. You know, it's a form yeah. control. And then placing a, a young black male into the back of a police car. And I just remember thinking at 14, I'll never give anyone that kind of privilege. So when I'm in that situation, I'm going to be you know, really collected and really mm-hmm. calm. And then and then I can't remember what film it was, but Ludacris was in it. And there's a scene in this particular film, they're being stopped and searched by the police. Is it Crash? Yeah, Crash, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and they're being yeah. stopped and searched by the police. It's, it's the scene with Sandy Newton. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, the, yeah. the policeman's obviously, yeah. yeah. And, and, he, and, he doesn't, and he doesn't do anything. He just says, like, literally, just don't say anything. And you kind of think to yourself, like, for people of colour in that position, what, what do you do? Because you act, too, you act really collected, mm. And police people still take advantage. Yeah, because he sexually harassed the he did, man's yeah. wife. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he and he didn't yeah. do anything. He couldn't do yeah. it. And she was, you know, yeah, ended, yeah. he was furious at him. They didn't he didn't, you know, respect her honour, so to yeah. speak. And then you have this other situation where you resist mm. and you're still put in. So what what do you do? You yeah. know, so you can have this collected cool Bjorn Borg like temperament, but actually the police take advantage of that anyway. Mm. And then when you resist, 
<laughs> because yeah. you've been kind of victimized in some way then you, you you're still you're still going to have that same treatment anyway and i just find it really interesting because like when people have said well that's what they expect so that's what i do when you say that to people they kind of think well logically well why play up to the stereotype that's what you always hear but until mm. you've been in that powerless position it's can't very it's, yeah you can't it's very can't hard judge, to judge yeah. yeah um i mean what's what's your view on it Chantel? um do you know what i was last time i was stopped in search and also actually, is that is that narrative different for for young women i was stopped of? i was stopped uh it was about a year ago last time i was stopped um and i was in my car and i was driving near lavender hill actually yeah. in batsy and um the police car like flagged me down and made me pull over on the side and they were like who's is this car I was like, my car. Um, I think I called you after tea. I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. all voice that is you, like, fucking police. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they're like, who's this car? I was like, it's my car. And they were like, oh, we've got, we're looking for a missing car that fits this description. And I was like, uh, um, we're looking for a missing car that fits this description and we're looking for someone who looks like you as well. And I was like, what, black? And then he went, don't, don't be lippy. Yeah. Like, but I would say, yes, yeah, so that happened. But the majority of times when I've been... I think racially profiled by those that have power, whether it be law or security, has mainly been in uh, nightclubs. Right. Um, and because majority of my friends growing up, so I grew up in a really uh, white town, mm. um, were white, right. I would always be the person that was singled out. So I don't think it's... I don't want to say it's... Obviously, women, black women get stops and search, and mm. women of colour get stops and search, but it's, it's, not, it's not the same, I don't think. Yeah. We... Uh, I don't necessarily think there's a, a there's ways to negotiate that situation, but I feel like like it's really poignant what you said about the white man putting his hand mm. on the black man's head. There's something really, yeah. Yeah, it is. I think when you just think historically, you know, when we have these kind of different uh, recollections in terms of particularly things around how slavery is portrayed yeah. in a in the arts, like and you see it, you know, whether it be Twelve Years a Slave or you know. Uh, roots or whatever mm. there's always something really symbolic about that kind of master mm. doing that you know and stripping a black male of their dignity mm. Mm. Um, I, th- I think as well like what you were what you were taught the, pe- the th- other people that I'm really interested in is those who observe this stuff so mm. you you mentioned your friends when you were stopped in search and one yeah. of your friends said well you must have done something yeah was... so I, I can remember very similar conversations with like my white mates yeah. and it's only recently that some of them have said to me, wow, Chantelle, it must have been really hard. Like, like do you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, it's so interesting listening to them sort of talking amongst themselves. It's like they've actually realised that racism exists. Like, I'm not trying to yeah. sort of give them a pat on the back as like allies, but like so much time, because I wasn't around that many people, that many people of colour growing up, you spend so much time not being able to actually rationalise or work put words to what you are experiencing yeah. because no one else around you is experiencing that and then they say oh it's not that it's not this do you know what do you know yeah, what i mean no i for sure and it becomes interesting because i you, you kind of you never want to act off the premise that to understand something you've had to experience it there is a cognizance that comes with mm. you know almost that praxis link theory mm. and practice mm. so the theory of kind of understanding how someone may feel it's very different to it actually occurring in mm. practice you know so for example like as you know, I speak for myself. So as a black male academic, like, I recognise that there is a currency that comes with that. 
that women of colour don't have. So we were talking the other day, um, Shantan, and I was saying to you that, like, there's a lot of work at the moment around kind of racial harassment in higher education. A lot of the kind of stuff that's kind of being revealed is that a lot of this actual racial harassment, it does happen to young black males and uh, black male undergraduates and postgraduates. But actually, the majority of it happens to uh, black women, you yeah. know, women of colour um, in the academy. Because, like it or not, and some people may agree or disagree with it, but there is a currency that comes with being an educated whatever that means. Or let's talk, let's talk about it in academic sense. An, yeah. edu- an, an educated black man with a degree, you are, you are high capital mm-hmm. in that because you are then fetishised by white women. You know, it's this idea, oh, he's, he's educated and he's yeah, black. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's, he's almost, you know, that, that's perfect. It mm-hmm. ticks all the boxes, you know. Like um, if there's ever kind of a thing where it's like, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm acting out at uni, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to... Yeah, I'm gonna sleep with a black man. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Then, yeah, then, then, then it's really almost like yeah. the you know the, the barometer would be is that educated black man, and for some black men, actually it's you know it it plays a part of being popular at university, like not actually ever having to navigate mm-hmm. as some black men aspects of racism, and the, it, I won't really call that a sweeping comment either because mm-hmm. you know I think there are a lot of black men that um, when they go to university. They are in that space. Equally, there are black men that are in a completely racialized and discriminatory space as well. Mm. But that's, you know, I've, I've, from my observations and from the research I've read and the, and the people I've engaged with, that's not a privilege that's afforded to women of colour. No. No, I would agree. And obviously we spoke about this a lot on the podcast, but that's where I think in terms of talking about the police and then looking at mm. other institutions like higher education, the workplace, like... Our experiences are different um, and I guess sort of saying that is really important um, but also we don't want to take away from racialisation and racism. It's really important to make that distinction and I think, yeah, um, I think more people are doing it but I think it needs to be said more and I know you do it a lot, Jason. But yeah, what do you think, T? Do you know what? I Do do we we think they've got a tough job? I I just think they've got a tough job. I I think they've got a tough job. Listen, I, I wouldn't like to be a policeman. Like, yeah. as, no matter what my friends are like, I grew up with either in the East End or people I met later in life and stuff, like, some of them are arseholes. Mm. It's hard work, man. However, like, it's... The, the experience I had, I was going... I was 13, and I my mum had allowed me to go see my friend from school and mm. live in Stockwell. My mm. first journey to South London yeah. by myself. Right. I got lost, and I was on the road. Stockwell, not too far from Brixton. Mm. So in between Stockwell and Brixton. Yeah. And... They stopped me and asked me, had I stolen a cash register? <laughs> I just came at the station. Mm. And I, it's the fear. Mm. I didn't know what to do. You've, been, you've never had that experience. You don't know what to say, yeah, right. what to do. You panic. Yeah. And then you, Heart's going you heart and you're sweating. Yeah. Um, but as I became more involved in, I suppose, street culture and more involved in um, that side of things, the police had become my quote, air quotes enemy mm. so I, I knew they were going to stop me sometimes I wanted them to stop me yeah. for that confrontation mm. but I, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a funny thing it's hard to understand so, so funny you say that about wanting them to stop you I, I, I kind of I welcomed it yeah. but more so I could exercise this zen like temperament which 
I was never going to be that 14-year-old that was completely flustered, mm. was completely out of yeah. control. And I was I just wanted the opportunity to be as collected as possible. So I welcomed it for completely different But you're, you're trying, it's the same kind of pretty, you're taking control but back. You're taking control back, right. Yeah. You think that like, you had control over me, but you always lose. Like, ultimately, yeah, <laughs> ultimately, you always lose. So ultimately, I ended up in the cell. That's where I ended up. But I don't know, I find it, I feel bad when I speak to young kids now. I, I understand what they go through. It's so shit. Like, I don't know. We're so... Obviously, we, we've all been stopped and we're all in very privileged positions. Um, doesn't stop it being shit being stopped, but equally, like, these like younger people now, like, or people that have less privilege and less capital, like, being stopped is just, just so much worse. And more recently, I've been trying to... When I've seen, like, just the police, like, patting down, like, 12-year-olds and whatever, I try and make a point of going over and just saying to the... Just looking directly at the boy and saying, are you all right? Um, do you want me to wait here? And it annoys the police so oh, it much. And, it annoys them so much. Now, but what, people, do, but, uh, what people are doing now is they're recording it. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. And so... so And every time I've done that, I'd say even in the last month, I've done it over 10 times, um, the police officer will be like... It's recorded. You don't need to come over. Like they'll be so like oh, yeah. annoyed that I'm getting involved. But I just it feel it just doesn't feel right. There's no parent there. There's no guardian there. They're just kids being harassed yeah. by the law. And again, I know this is something that's happened for, as you say, decades. But I just it's so frustrating that we're not learning what, what anything. Are your, what are both your views on uh, people who suggest that actually? Not that I agree with this, but this is like a common discourse. That actually, some of these young black boys there's this idea that they're not helping themselves that they're doing things to play up to this before anyone comes to me by the way that's not something I agree with that's just a dominant uh, <laughs> discourse I do not agree with that at all but there's this idea that young black boys they're not making the right choices and they're somehow you know not helping themselves they're disadvantaging themselves by the choices they're making I think it's a highly racialized trope like why don't we talk about the young middle class white boys in Surrey that are doing coke like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's just, it, it's... Right. You see the middle class people, I know they're different, right? So from a working class thing, white working class mates would not be harassed in the same way yeah. that the black, my black mates would, but they would be harassed by the police mm. it, still mm. because they see them as troublemakers, even though they will be, wouldn't be doing nothing. There's just young kids looking back, mm. but they would be harassed. It's in a different way. Yeah, so it's class and it's racialised yeah. and... I just don't, I think that sort of narrative and that sort of discussion just misses the point and it's another distraction. Like, mm. it doesn't open up conversations about, like, we were talking with Adam about this on the last, on a couple of podcasts ago, like, public, looking at public health in relation to how young people interact within certain um, cities, for example. Like, I just think, as if we're going to keep having that conversation. I know, like, but it, it seems to be something that people in in kind of media, public culture, hang their hat on. I mean, if you listen to Piers Morgan... and, their, and their Don't segment, listen to Piers Morgan. Don't listen to Piers Morgan. <laughs> the, the segment they have on Good Morning Britain called On a Knife Edge, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's continuous kind of go back to, is that statistically speaking... The majority of knife crimes committed by young black males. He, he that's the statistic. He will not yeah, he, stray he from. That, he, holds like, that, he, he holds it, holds it again. Yeah. Even if uh, even if a car is hitting him with fact after fact after fact, anyone who's been on there's hitting him, he will still go back to that kind of statistic. So it's kind of like you kind of think it's so in, it's so weird that you use that statistic because white people kill more anyway. No, no, but, like, but do, it, do you know what I mean? But like, if it's that narrative that black or black criminality, it fits that narrative that black people are 
naturally aggressive. All those mm. all those tropes that exist in their heads, it's easier and to all those And all those tropes that come from, like, slave Same trade, mm. like, yeah. even before that, like, it's everything, all these things just manifest and reproduce and continue, um, and it's frustrating, annoying. It drives me insane, but people would, police would say it's kind of like a kind of a kind of too new age but I think yeah. they need to engage in subcultures more trying to understand youth culture because whatever happened from my understanding whenever we see youth culture the authorities try to stop it how many times have, have, the, have police been told that over the last 30-40 yeah. years to engage with these cultures like doing it once a year in oh, August at, not, video, not, at, not, at, Notting, at Notting Hill, at Notting Hill yeah it, it drives me mad like I don't it's actually it doesn't cost my. It's actually like just a very common sense approach. My dad always says, "If if common sense was common, everyone would have it." Like it, it's so simple. Mm. You know, when people say, "Oh no, it's not as simple." It actually is. If you engage with these communities, you find out some of their lived experiences, what they're having to navigate on a continuous basis. It gives you that kind of understanding and that empathy to employ when you're kind of engaged with that community, as opposed to policing them with an iron fist and basically just making the assumption that mm. they're black, they're going to be making trouble. Mm. You know, mm. because, you know, we can go to any football ground right now and, and just racism is just all over the place. And mm. people don't... And the large populace of football fans are white working class. Mm. But no one polices that situation and says, they're going to... Well, we need to get people on, on the ground here because they're going to be racist today. There's a high percent, there's a high likelihood yeah. in the base of the last kind of 18 months that racism will occur in a football ground in the UK. <laughs> I would say that the racism that comes out of the mouths of white football fans cuts across classes, actually. Yeah. I would say, yeah, it's a working class and middle class phenomenon. But um, my dad always says this thing when he's talking about like his experiences of being yeah black in the 80s, as a young man. Like going to the football, like he's a big Arsenal fan, mm. and he's talk about like watching um, like John Barnes yeah. playing, and like people throwing bananas at him, yeah. and then like the white people will be sat next to him, they'll be like, "Oh, no offense, mate, no yeah, offense." Yeah, yeah. Like, and it's just so. Like, oh, it's, it's the classic. Like, I, I, if like, I if I had a penny for every time like someone would be like, um, "You go to a place like, you know, those blacks." They're this, that. They're fucking this. They're fucking that. You know, they're in this. They're in that. But you know, you're all right. You're you're all right. Though. I like you. Yeah, you're the unright one. Oh. You're the you're the one we like. Yeah. But it's the rest of you. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it, and it's funny because like you kind of think like we went through this phase where you know political correctness didn't really exist in the nineties. Yeah, so I, I was talking about this recently. Yeah. I, I was half cast. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. Yeah. And, and that was just, and, and that, that was, was it. fine. That's I mean, people normal. still use the word coloured. Yeah. Yeah, right. And <laughs> and then you get to the the early noughties, you know, then the first decade goes through of, of the noughties and then over the last ten years people started getting really antsy with this term political critics like, oh the lefties have capitalised everything again. And now we're just at a stage where people can just say what the hell they want. And we're back to that point where in the kind of the cusp of the nineties, you had you almost you, you had a large proportion of the media spinning that, you know, in some way Stephen Lawrence must have brought about his murder on himself. Mm. You know, these five uh, white guys that have been tried, you know, they're being victimised. Yeah, and you had a system that was set up to basically... Protect them. Protect them. Yeah. And place Stephen Lawrence at fault. And, and, you, and you're kind of thinking about it, and you're thinking, right, I, I feel like we definitely got back. If all these black lives are being lost, it's their fault. Mm. At the end of the day, 
they're misbehaving in class, they're being thrown out of school, therefore they're ending up on the streets, and then because of that lack of education, they're making bad choices, and the choices they're making are they're taking each other's lives. We're, we're back, we're back. It's like Tisa said at the beginning, we've read this book so many times, and, and the story, the ending never changes. We're, back, we're just back to where we was. You see, and, and that narrative fits the kind of philosophy of neoliberalism. It's all individual choices. Everything's on the individual. Society takes no blame in that. Yeah. Authority takes no blame in that. And it's down to your own individual circumstances. You got yourself into the mess, you get yourself out, but we know that's not reality. No. And it just, it, at, at this point, right, it just tells me that this, this whole thing, this, this experiment of neoliberalism has failed. Mm. Mm. Because it, it puts it down to you and your, your your you and your own individual choices, but if you're a young working class black woman or some kind of some kind of uh, minority group, we know you know it's not like that. Yeah. You know you struggle, man. And it's just like we're having to have these conversations again. It's so weird. Like the amount of times I get asked to go on panels to talk about my experience as yeah, minoritized woman, and it's like. Oh, do, you, do you not know about this but, yet? Like, do you still like? Do you, do you still yeah. not understand? But see, what, what gets um, me is this this thing about political correctness, yeah. right? Like they made they made such a big thing about it. like they it's kind of changed into an argument about free speech. Like we're trying to police your thoughts. No, I'm not trying to police your thoughts. You can think what you want, but just have good manners. That's oh. what it is. Have good manners. I don't want you calling me a coon. Mm. I don't, that's not on. Yeah. Mm. I don't want you singing bar bar black sheep. Mm. Do you understand yeah. that? Like, mm. it's about having good manners. Mm. You can think what you want to think. Right. Like, I'm not trying to please your thoughts, but when I speak to you, I might think you're an arsehole, mm. but I'm not going to call you that to your yeah, face. Yeah, right, exactly. So, and, and, this is, and this is where we're at in 2019. It seems odd. It seems like these people just, they just want to be racist. They oh, just they want can... to be sexist. And this is what, and they feel so free now. They, uh, they can, uh, I, I was speaking to, um, you know, one of few nights I get to actually go out. I was speaking to Chantel on, um, on Saturday and I'd gone to a gig a friend of mine bought me tickets to go to a gig and me and my young brother went to this gig and it was a Stone Roses tribute act at Borderline um, in Tottenham Court Road and the set was like two hours just over two hours for about 80 minutes of this set there was these guys behind the whole by the way like every time I'm in this situation I am the only person of colour there so which is fine I've been used to it since I was like 13 which is fine you just accept that there was this group of guys behind us and they just wouldn't let up. Black this, and that, what are you doing here? For 80 minutes, and I know the band, so I had to, so you know, I had to text them all, because I always meet them afterwards, we talk and stuff like that. I had to say to them, we had to leave early, because, you know, and I, I sent... Um, yeah, you were being racially abused. Yeah, we were being racially abused, and he was, are you being serious? I was like, the, the, and that's the problem. And I'm not saying that kind of music draws that kind of crowd, yeah. but the thing is, is that there is a group of people that, like, you know, these some of these people are reformed hooligans. Yeah. yeah. And when they get in that kind of England, this is England ninety yeah. environment. Yeah. And they got the fishermen's hats on and the old, they, they they it's almost like they revert back to it's like what they was and they feel like that's a space where they can just do and say as they please. And interestingly, there is never really any consequences for that kind of behaviour. It is like what do, like what do you do in that situation? Listen, listen I'll tell you this now, right? I can't have that anymore. Yeah. I can't have that. When I was younger, I you'd, you'd be quiet. Mm. But in 2000, I can't have that anymore. Not for my sake. Mm. It's for the kids' sake. I can't have them growing up with the same attitude that I, what, what, what we thought we got rid of. So when I see people throwing banana skins on the pitch and shouting monkey in 2019, that's unacceptable by mm. 
by any means. But, what, but, 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 it, but it's been made acceptable again. We've got the mainstream that it, are the mainstream endorsing right. this. So, because so, I was really annoyed with myself that I, I didn't, I just ignored it. I just reverted back to stay collected, stay calm. Because if something yeah. goes off here, it's going to be the only two black guys in here, yeah. me and my younger brother, and it's going and it's going to be we started it. Yeah, listen, I listen, I get. But I, but I, but I should have turned around and said something. I got because in the end I walked out. No, no, you see those situations. Like I thought about this a lot, and I thought to myself, when I was younger, a lot of situations, especially when I was trying to be climb the corporate ladder, some people yeah. said shit to me, and in hindsight, I should have said something. Mm. But being older now, I can't have that anymore. Yeah. Because, like I said, it's, it's not for me. It's more for the kids. I've I've had my youth. And mm. I'm moving, has moving to his 50, oh, my days, <laughs> 41. Um, but it's more for the kids, because when I see them, and when I've done some mentoring with some kids, they're all different, all different races, ethnicities, mm. religions, genders, all together, and uh, sexual orientation, they're all different. But they're so, I don't, want, I don't want them to feel that they can't be themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And that's important. I, there's no one that should be able to tell them they can't be themselves. Mm. Mm. And... This environment, people are telling you, you have to be this or you have to assimilate. But listen, we have assimilated. The values of this, of this country are freedom, to be yourself. Mm. That's one of the key values. But for who? Freedom for who? For everyone. Yeah, but that so, doesn't happen. So, but this, this, so we, when they say assimilate, we have done that. Mm. Yeah. So the, 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 kind of, the only variable I can think is time for you to be more introspective and change your attitude. But what's what's quite interesting in what Jason's recalling there is that when people get together, like I have, I feel like I have almost like a PTSD of like really white spaces now from growing up in the growing up mm. in racist areas, and I was actually at a gig recently. Um, it was my partner's friend's fortieth, and we went to a Zootons gig. Do you remember the Zootons? Yeah, yeah, I remember Zootons, yeah. yeah. and we good went band. to the, we went to the Zootons. Yeah. It was really good. They were fucking skinheads there. And I was just scared. Like, I was so scared. And I remember I was saying to my partner, I was like, there's people really staring at me here. I was obviously, like, the only black person there. Actually, no, I did see one black guy. I've not felt that. Like, I've gone to those gigs. Like, uh, my music taste is very varied. So I used to go to the Kooks. Got great, to go great the, music taste. I used to go to see the Wombats. Like, I used to go see these, like, indie bands. And I didn't ever feel... Uh, even though I was the only black person there, I didn't ever feel that, like tension that I feel now and I know that's I, I, I think that is partly a PTSD thing but I do think it's something about people feeling more emboldened with their racism like I think I know you're saying I won't take that no, now no, listen, but Shenta, I, I 100% agree one of the instances for example where I would normally let it slide so when I'm in training for example, like I said, back at home so what's the white guys come to you? Over years they've been saying it. Training for, in the gym? Yeah, gym, bodybuilding. So they'll say to me, oh, it's your genetics, it's your genetics, it's your genetics. And I would just let that shit slide. But mm. now, I will say to you, why did you say that? I feel like, that, I feel like you've changed your approach on this even more, yeah. like in the last like, I've, year I've, or I've, so. I've even. I said, why did you say that to me? Yeah. And I'm saying, do you understand why you said that to me? I've got into, well, not four night mates, but I've got into massive arguments trying to say to them, do you understand why you're saying it? Yeah. Do you understand that you don't say that to anyone that's white? Yeah. To them, it's down to hard work. Yeah. Even though I train twice a day, you think it's purely down to my genetics. Yeah, yeah. And when I say to him, the only, I said, the only matches I've ever lost is to a white guy. So what, what's then? So if I've got natural genetics, I should just won. Yeah. Or when I say to him, well, so does my natural genetics go to my intellect as well? Well, you, yeah, it, it defaults. Yeah, it defaults, it defaults yeah, to my physicality. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'm trying to say to him, does it go to my... Uh, kind of like, like kind of intellectual capacity? And they're like... Yeah. Uh, uh, and then one of my friends said to me... Um, T, Q, 
can, can you swim? Uh, I said, yeah. Um, he goes, well, why is it? And I was like, listen, yeah, before, you, before you say day, anything. Day, day, <laughs> tea, yeah. I think I've heard every bullshit. Uh, yeah, I like, said, before yeah. you say anything, I said, just stop. I said, why do you say that? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you say that? And like I said, I, like I said it, it, it's more of the frustration because they, they lack critical capacity. They're not thinking. They're just saying and repeating. I'll tell you something really funny. Like, when you say it, it's so funny because, like, just, this is very story. Like, when we get this gig, and I, I've seen the Stone Roses live twice. Like, I, I love it. So, and you, you're singing the songs, and, and, I, and you can feel people staring at you, and, 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 they're itch, and they're itching to ask you. Like, so the guy turns around to me, and there's a woman who says, Oh, have you, like, because the presumptions then come, do, do you know just this song? Have you just recently got into it? It's like, No, no, I. I know most songs, and what they can't deal with is this idea of like, you know, being a person of colour in this space, and in their mind, you're singing their songs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I often think like, how does this narrative play out when? Because equally, I've been, I've seen Jay Z in concert, mm-hmm. and I've and I've seen you know. But white people are allowed but, to like Jay Z, aren't they? Right, and 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 interestingly, like I don't think, and I, maybe I'm saying I'm not. I'm being subjective. I don't think people of colour make that space exclusive. No, no. I, I, I think they. I think they're actually more inclusive. Well, this, this is it. it comes in that of, space, that old kind of adage like, "My mates are tea. I go to like a white. It's a black club." But no, no one cares. Literally, yeah, no, literally, yeah. No one cares. I said you can cope. I said you can go there. I said like when I went to see um, Rakim. Yeah. Like. Everyone's there, like yeah. young white kids that they will have it, have it even worn. school hip hop, but they know <laughs> the world, all that. Yeah. And but when I've gone to clubs that were they can see themselves as white, mm. they let you know. They, but that, but that's, that's what I'm saying, like. And if you took like someone like, like, just as an example, Tim Westwood, is like <laughs> yeah. one of the most revered yeah. hip hop like music people. Yeah. Not even DJs, just music people. Yeah. Full stop, around the world, like. If and you know, I always thought, if you imagine if you had the if there was a such thing, if you just like human me, if there was a black equivalent of Tim Westwood, but in white guitar music, mm. indie music, mm. like how how accepting would people be of that? Because I think the black community have been extremely accepting of him over his twenty five year yeah, career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So not just not Tim Westwood, David Roddick, David Roddick, yeah, yeah, all them people, and like they're they're respected because we we just don't care. Yeah, but. Like I said, when I've gone to like clubs like Strawberry Sunday or when I've gone up north or when I've gone clubbing in like um, Brighton or lesser Brighton, more like Glasgow, yeah, there is an understanding that when you walk in that room, right, it's like a western. Yeah. People turn around like that. But the way I've been brought up, I don't care. I go where I want to go. Yeah. But I noticed that you feel it. You do, yeah. And you I feel was, it. but I would say that what's slightly different in being a black woman or woman of color in those spaces is that, like, the threat is almost slightly different. Like, you've got a threat of violence. I would say it's double. You've got, yeah, you've got a threat of violence, <laughs> you've got a threat of sexual assault, so, yeah. you've got a threat of being... Poli- like, I'm, I'm not trying to say, like, mm. I'm not trying to trumpet or whatever, I'm just sort of oh, thinking no, about it from it sounds, a... Oh, it does trumpet. But, yeah, it I'm does just trying to, okay, I'm just trying to think The only thing like, you've got going for you as a black male is that there is an element of fear... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So based on these ignorant perceptions, I just think if you're you're a black male, you're going to be able to do a bit. But white women have done that to me, particularly if I'm thinking about like the clubbing scene and going out. Like I've been a big clubber or going out since I was like 15, and the amount of times, like particularly in the toilets, when white women have just wanted to have a go, Um, and then if I've acted in a way which is confrontational, 
then I am the problem. Like, I'm the problem. So I have to... I went for a stage where I sort of wanted to be the problem more, like, because I was so fed up with being sort of policed, racialised and positioned as this angry black woman that I started to, like, actually look for that a little Mm. bit when I was going out. But, yeah, that's something that was put on me. And I I think you walking into those clubs in Glasgow, I'm thinking, what would that be like for me? Like, there's lots of different things that it would be like. Some white men would want to attack me. Some would want to... Like would be fetishizing me. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, it's so, that's why I said it. It does yeah. trump it. It'd, it'd be worse. I mean, the, the, I suppose the one thing you kind of think about when you're in those spaces, you kind of think, if if something was to kick off now, I, I, I've it's basically me. It'd be me against the world. Yeah. You know, just as a, as a funny kind of side note, like I've always got you know I've got three brothers, but like my young brother in particular, we're very close, and I've always kind of. I think he's always liked the fact that I've been myself and I was mm. always into what I was into and stuff. And I got him into a lot of the music that I'm into. And his actual reason for going with me, you know, to going with me to these gigs was not actually because he had a, a massive interest in the music. That was actually, in the end, he actually did like the music. Mm. It was actually to keep an eye on me because he was like, when I used to explain to him, he'd be like, oh, how was the gig? And I said, oh, this person did this and stuff. Mm. He was like, what would happen if, like... So and I said I just leave early, like um, when it's oh. and, he, and and so his reason for going was like okay, well safety in you know my mum's gifts expression was safety in numbers, and you kind of think like that in itself is great because just generally speaking, if someone held a gun to my head and said like what's your favorite kind of music, it'd be it'd be rock and roll, mm. and I'm talking like you know rock and roll in its true essence. So to maybe to what we people perceive it to be now, but I'm talking like. You know, from the sixties, you know, like people like Little Richard, Jimi Hendrix, um, you know, uh, Buddy Miles, those types of kind of musicians. Mm. Because obviously, like another thing about rock and roll, which kind of is always lost on people who say, "Oh, you're black and you're into rock and roll," it's, is that it's from it's from black people, yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. it was reappropriated, culturally appropriated yeah. by white people. In particular, two particular bands, mm. the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Mm. So when when people are kind of talking about that, they talk about it as if like. You know, rock it and roll is it yeah. belongs to what? It, it's not. It's it's not. It's it, in in every sense of its essence and its form and where it originates from. It's black, mm-hmm. um, and it was you know, and it's like you know, Mick Jagger said and Paul McCartney said. We basically took black R and B, popped it up and resold it to a white audience. That is what they did. Mm-hmm. But it's funny. But when you go to these kind of into those kind of spaces. You know, people make it very clear that this is our space. You know, what you're doing here, you're almost a foreign body mm-hmm. here. And then they show that through, you know, physically symbolic gestures or verbal kind of gestures. Um, That's what I feel has come back slightly. And this isn't just in, like, gig environment. This is on, I, if anyone... Is it, I think I've ranted about it before on the podcast, but public transport is a big one for me where yeah. racist incidents happen. Um, but people have brought back the stare, I feel. Brought back the stare, the, the moving away, sit, sitting next to someone. And, yeah. you know, I mean, you tend to see it with more often with people from a Muslim background, men, yeah. women and men. Yeah. I, was, I remember watching a guy, I can't remember, he's a professor from somewhere in America, I can't remember, but he was talking about the, the process of racialization, and he said even objects that have no racial characteristics become racialized mm. for example chicken watermelon how can you racialize food but well they've done it but this is this what happens i know but it's the classic line black people and chicken yeah yeah and uh, you, you racialize you racialize a, a food substance <laughs> uh, a food, it's when you think about it in an abstract level it's, it seems absurd yeah but then people say to you, they come to you, oh, you got chicken today too you're like 
It is funny though, but then even in like kind of popular culture and films, like I, it just reminded me of a scene in Bad Boys, the film where um, these South American policemen come in and they say to Martin Lawrence and Sir Will Smith, um, what, what do you guys fancy for lunch? Do you want a bucket of extra, extra crispy? <laughs> and they just burst out laughing yeah, because they're like, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's this presumption that, yeah, obviously black people just eat chicken. And, you know, is that you, you can literally racialize anything. I mean, I must caveat that by saying, like, um, Martin Lawrence turns around and then says, like, he mimics them mm-hmm. in a South American accent and they turn around to him and say, why have you got to be racial? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important to caveat that for people to say, oh, I'm just telling one <laughs> side of the story. But, yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, we're living in a time now, I think, you know, Chantel, we're... Just people can just say what they want, I, I, and there's not. And the sad thing is, the scary thing is, there's not actually any consequences mm. for doing that. You know, you, you even in academic spaces, in societal spaces, people. I, I would go as far as say people are being applauded for, for speaking for speaking in that way, for being yeah. you know divisive or yeah. speaking. They're being they're being applauded. I was watching this um, program the other day called Sleeping with the Far Right. No, and it yeah, came out. It yeah. came out ages ago, yeah, yeah. but I'd only just watched it. And Jason said to me about it. I was like, "Oh, you need to talk to T. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Oh, well, I don't want to ruin it for you, but it it just it just goes. But I mean, the paradox to this whole thing is that the actual gentleman that they're doing the kind of exploring the phenomena on, he himself is mixed raced. His his yeah. his his dad is half Indian and half South African, and his real name is actually. You know, his real name is what would be classed as, as he said, a typically Indian name. And so he changed that name because he didn't want there to be any inference to that. You know, and it, and you just kind of, and you just kind of think, like, how crazy that paradox is. In our positions as black academics who, academics of colour, who are privileged in the sense that we get to talk about this stuff, we get to sit in an audio booth and talk about our experiences... What are the things that we should be doing? Um, I know, Tisa, you said I'm not having it anymore in the sense that you're, you're no, challenging, which is know, good. I don't but... think it's challenging. I think what when I say to people is like, it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be, some people are not activists. Yeah. Some people are not into politics, but it's about having a conversation with people. Mm. Like sometimes when I challenge people, it's just to have that conversation, really, mm. because sometimes they haven't really thought about it from a different point of view. So mm. sometimes... We will be, we'll be I mean you'll be activists well I'll follow your lead mainly so do I but most of the time it's having conversations as I've got older to speak to people and, and for me to be more forthright in what I, I put you forward for those conversations if anyone's being racist when I'm with you I'm like talk to Tiso he'll explain it to yeah. you I just can't I can't so that's I don't want to take that role but you want to take that role which is good yeah what role would you like to take, Jason? I don't know. Like I, you're I, taking the role. I mean, you're doing <laughs> so much stuff. I, I mean, what, what what I always admire is that people do things in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe I have many strengths, but the one thing I do think I've got is I can be quite clear, and I've got a very good temperament. And I think in the when you're faced with absolute provocation in the eye of the beast, I think there's a certain type of person they expect to come back at them. And when you are the complete opposite of that and you are collected and you're calm and you're black because people don't associate those those things with, mm. you know, they associate black people being cool mm. but they don't actually associate them with having, you know, temperate characteristics like being collected, calm mm. and being astute. Um, I think that's kind of how, how you face it. And I think in doing that, um, I think it's really important to kind of 
I think it's important to kind of call out certain things. So, for example, just like, as I mentioned it last Friday, historically, like, the heavy lifting in terms of racism has been done by women of colour mm-hmm. in all institutions, yeah? If we look at all of society's major institutions, it's always been done by women of colour. So if there was, like, a call to arms or if I was going to kind of advocate anything, is that men engage more with that heavy lifting because women of colour are more subjugated to certain things over mm. black men. And for them to work from that deficit in the first place and then to carry the burden on their own, or the majority of the burden, because like I said, there is a lot of privileges that comes with being a black male. Mm. If, 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 you, if you get through the system, you know, you, you can become a commodity actually quite quickly. Um, and we only have to look at like loads of different facets, like mm. you know things, things like education, fashion, sport, mm. all of those kind of things, music. Um, but what we do know is that's not that's not the same form of colour. Yeah, mm. they're the ones that are always positioning themselves on the front line, mm. taking the shots. You know, while the men, in a lot of cases, are, are kind of behind. Mm-hmm. And when that kind of front lay of defence, uh, they're all dead laying before you. Then the men kind of come through once all the hard work's been done. Mm-hmm. And if I was going to say anything, is that there needs to be more people, more men, particularly black men, taking up that, that, that call to arms mm-hmm. because, um, you know, you, 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 we're leaving our women of colour hanging. We're leaving our sisters in arms. We're leaving mm-hmm. them hanging at the moment. Um, and that would be my biggest observation in my time in academia over the last mm-hmm. six, seven years. Because when I go to all of these, when I go to these kind of, if you go to select committees or you go to conferences and stuff, the makeup of the room is 70 to 80% women of colour. Oh, okay. Women right, of colour. Okay, yeah, in terms of when we're talking about yeah. race, at the forefront, doing yeah, the work. Yeah, yeah doing the work. Um, when you go to the kind of more, what I call the champagne moments, mm. then it's predominantly is white people. And it's, and it's, and I, te- you know, it's just my opinion. I tend to see the black men at the champagne moments. Mm. You know, the champagne moments. The, the moments that I consider to be the ones that don't really matter. Yeah? Mm. Um, whereby, where might I add, women of colour don't actually have spaces. In, they're, not, they're not included in those spaces. They're systematically and deliberately excluded from those spaces. So if I, you know, that would really be the kind of change I'd want to see. Um, and I suppose, to be honest with you, it starts with people like myself asking women of colour... What can we do? What can we do to better support mm. you so that you're not just doing this? You're not just taking... Because when you do... When this stuff is being done, we benefit from it massively. Mm. So what can we do to support you in that? Mm. That would be my thing, I think. I think, I, I think I'm a bit tired of being on the front line, so I think I'd like to do more behind... Or I'd continue to do more behind-the-scenes work. It's like, I feel like I have times in my life where I'm happy to engage in the violence that is whiteness within institutions, within the police, within mm. whatever. I feel like I'm at a time at the moment where I don't particularly want to do that as much. And that's okay. Like, I'm sure it will come back again. But at the moment, I just want to help those that are marginalised as much as possible, yeah, behind the scenes. Like, how can I effectively, yeah, elevate people with the cap- social capital that I've acquired? But, yeah, I think... But you, you, I think... you, but you were doing that while you were on the front line anyway. That's what I mean. Um, I, I feel like it's... But, I mean, like, I don't think, like... So, IT, I think you'll be great, like, debating with, like, a white middle-class basically racist but like there's a time in my life when I can do that stuff but at the moment I don't feel like I can and that's okay like Mm. I think it's good to sort of like you said Jason like what's amazing about society is we all take different roles and particularly Mm. in activism we all take different roles but yeah 
I just wanted to say, if we've got one minute left, yeah. can we just talk about each what our perfect outfit would be? Okay, right. So, obviously, <laughs> this is a podcast. <laughs> and if you know, you might think that Tiso, like, loves trainers. How many pairs have you got, T? 300. Jason really likes... I love tailoring and clothes, particularly double-breasted suits. And I really like clothes as well, like, a lot. Um, and... We were talking, me, we and Jason talk about trying to be the best dressed academic. There's no doubt. I've got, <laughs> look, I've, I've got to try and dethrone uh, Chantal at the moment. I'm not, I'm so, not the okay. best dressed academic. <laughs> do, you know who, do you know a really good, I would say, one of the best dressed academics is Bev Skeggs. Right. She's, yeah. Great. Okay. Um, this feels really wrong saying this. Sorry, okay. this is very, like, uh, no, no, this no. is a very socialist. No, and no. this isn't very, like, in line with things that we're preaching. But, yeah, we like clothes. Um, I don't know. I get, what would your dream outfit be? I, I tell you what, I went shopping the other day yeah. and I bought a pair, you know, three quarter, the, you know the chinos are back in. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are chinos back in? Yeah, bought them three quarter oh, chinos. Oh, Jason, got some chinos on. <laughs> <laughs> bought them chinos and I bought a little top, boom. Yeah. So nice. I, I tried to stay relevant. Like. What colour chinos? Uh... Like beige? No, like a dark grey, man. It's a good grey. colour. Oh, yeah. nice. Charcoal. Okay. Yeah. I feel like chinos look a bit funny on me. It's in the back in. Okay, maybe I'll go for dark. Because like, when, I, when, they, the were, when they were <laughs> there, when were they in about eight years ago, I used to have like beige ones. And I look back, I'm like, oh, that's stupid. No, not Jason, at all. Jason, what's your ideal outfit? My ideal outfit is pinstripe grey trousers with a, but kind of an eight, a four on four. Kind of um, Can I just side note here? So Jason is a qualified tailor. So Jason can make clothes. He can I make... used to be able to make. I can, well, I can make clothes. Yeah. Like um, so, but that that'd be my perfect thing. But a high finish, high finish. You want? I don't know if anyone can imagine it, but maybe about a couple of centimeters down from your collarbone, little bit of white shirt showing, and then a what kind of socks? So I, I told you socks are the most important thing. Yeah, so yeah. ideally, if you was wearing a green tie, yeah. it'd be subtle. So you want the tie to match the socks if you can do that. 100%. I used to wear that for, for work. So, yeah. So I always have, when we're going to like events, particularly in academia, I always have Saskia in the back of my head. Saskia, we miss you, by the way, today. Saskia made a really important point to me a couple of years ago when we first met, saying, academics always wear really dark colours. So I try to, even yeah, though I know I've got a dark colour on today, I try to wear colour as yeah, much as possible. Do, yeah. I try to wear colour, and yeah, thank you, Saskia, my sister. That's because of you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like, my Yeah, idea... last Thursday. Sorry? Last Thursday, you had a fantastic colour for that on. Yeah, okay, yeah. so I try and wear colour. Um, even though sometimes colour's not as flattering me. Anyway, so my ideal <laughs> outfit, yeah, is a dress. Dress, like a semi-bright coloured dress. But, bro, like brogues or... Yeah. You yeah. should not, uh, for me, I like, it's their footwear, man. I oh, say, your footwear. No, no, but when I see you in your footwear, you're probably, they're smart. And oh, yeah, so your footwear is, is, you see, your footwear. <laughs> I get so many complaints on those two. That's what I'm saying, your footwear, <laughs> it, it says something. I know, I know, I've got to get better though, because they're like my one, my one. My <laughs> one you can see someone and they can be dressed up and you look at their footwear and it's finished. Like, Mate, finished. I'm telling you this now, trainers, shoes, whatever yeah. it is, I agree with you. Footwear, for me, you... Good good footwear makes can make a bad outfit look good. Yeah, hundred percent. So I going to I, when I used to work in the city, decent shoes, man. You buy, you can wear a cheap suit, but you have to have decent, decent shoes, yeah. man, and decent socks. I'm yeah. learning that. I'm learning. I'm learning. And can we just yeah? Sorry to all our academic sheroes and heroes for us in, indulging in. Listen, just indulge <laughs> us. Indulge us. Indulge, indulge us. Indulge us. Indulge us. Indulge us. I was gonna say. 
if you've listened to all of this podcast has been heavy so just be thankful we're finishing on a light yeah, note it's been heavy okay so you've been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel Tiso and Jason we are going to BSA next week so this is a bit of a bonus episode actually um, but yeah we've got we're going to have about 15 episodes for you coming out of that um, conference so the BSA is a British Sociological Association conference that happens every year so yeah really looking forward to going and sharing those with you um, but in the meantime Please rate us and subscribe. Thank you.